This is the Drinks Adventures podcast. James Atkinson with you once again, and this episode is devoted to Australia's most iconic winery. I'm talking, of course, about Penfolds Wines, which has today, as Thursday, October the 18th, officially launched the Penfolds Collection, its family of top wines, led as always by Grange, which I'll come back to in a moment. It's been a massive few months for Penfolds, which in July announced the somewhat surprising plans to begin making wine offshore, being Penfolds branded champagne in France, and also wines in California's Napa Valley region. The other big announcement on the same day was the launch of Penfold Special Bottlings, a new series of limited edition unique products inspired by the pioneering nature of founders Dr. Christopher and Mary Penfold. Now the first two releases are not table wine or even really wine, at least as you or I know it. They are Lot 1990, a single batch brandy that was distilled and put into barrels in 1990, and Lot 518, a Shiraz-based wine fortified with the Chinese spirit Baijiu. These special bottlings have ushered into the limelight Penfolds fortified winemaker James Godfrey, who has been making fortified wines for the last 40 years, most of that at Penfolds. So in a short while, I'll be playing an interview with James that I recorded in the Barossa Valley earlier this year. But first, we're talking table wine, and not just any table wine. That's a very common way to refer to the Penfolds collection, 21 extremely high-quality wines that start at $50 a bottle and range all the way up to the 2014 Grange, which is now an incredible $900 on release. Penfolds held a pre-release tasting of these wines in late August, attended by Australia's top wine writers and me. As a first-timer at that tasting, I don't really have much to benchmark these wines against, unlike the many seasoned professionals in the room, like Jenny Port, who has been tasting and critiquing Penfolds wines for many years. I caught up with Jenny for a chat about the Penfolds collection 2018 this week. Well, Jenny Port, thanks so much for joining me for a chat. Pleasure, James. And I should also thank the ABC and Ozpod 2018 for having us use their facilities for this chat. Um, so the Penfolds collection tasting um, back in late August now, this obviously wasn't your first time at this event. What's, what's been your history of attending those Penfolds tastings? Um, well, it goes back to the beginning, I think, although I, I can't confirm it with Penfolds, but because they're not terribly sure when it started when I asked them. Um, it has to go back to the 90s to John Duval, and he was the chief winemaker back then. And... Uh, I wouldn't say a huge number of wine writers, but a number of wine writers would be invited to Adelaide. We'd go up to McGill and um, and we'd have a bit of a tasting of these wines. Sometimes it was in the city too. I remember going to the Universal uh, Wine Bar uh, one year and John Duval and now Peter um, would get up and they would introduce each wine, which is slightly a bit different in the last couple of years, they've been changing it a lot, but we'd have maps everywhere because these are multi-district blends. So we'd have to know which um, districts they were talking about, the percentages, we'd talk about oak. There would be a lot of toing and throwing between wine writers and, and Penfolds winemakers. And as you saw this year, it's almost none of that. <laughs> they give you the wines, you taste the wines in silence, you don't ask any questions and off you go, which I find as a wine writer um, a little bit hard, well, as a journalist, I should say, a little bit hard because I love to ask Peter Gago questions. But I think it was taking too long, so that's why they've changed the whole format. And it sounds like it was much more intimate back then as well. I mean, there would have been probably 30 people at this year's tasting, it looked like. Well, gee, at the start, maybe maybe 10 
Yeah. And there weren't a lot of wine writers back then. And there were no bloggers back then. And uh, there were no overseas connections. Um, some years, in recent years, we've had um, a number of Asian wine writers attend. So it's, it's global now. It's, it's a whole new ballgame. Do you get the same level of information now that you did back then uh, as to the individual vineyards that fruit's being sourced from, from from each wine, that sort of thing? You do because you get that most fantastic publication that they give you with all the details that they think that you'd need to know. And for the most part, it is. It's about the makeup um, of, of you know what grapes went into it and what areas they were sourced from and the vintage at the time and... It's good, but Peter Gago is such a mine, a huge, deep mine of information. Um, so generally I'll have a chat with him at some further stage afterwards just to um, get my, my feel from the whole experience. Because I'm basically a journalist, well, I am a journalist, and I, I like the, the meat in the story as much as the wines and how they taste. And what about the collection itself? Um, 21, 21 wines this year. How would that have compared to, to back in the 90s? Oh, oh, gee, back in the 90s, you would have had, uh, uh, I'd hate to think, maybe six or seven. These have been added to over the years. And I remember um, RWT, when that was launched um, back in the 90s, that was huge. That was, my goodness, what are you doing? Um, a very different expression to... Um, the Penfold, what we had come to expect um, of Penfolds. And, um, yeah, it's, it's changed from there on in. Those red wine trials, RWTs, um, are what we are now tasting today. And each year they introduce, you know, another one, the Marananga Shiraz. That caused a huge stir because that was previously fruit that was going into another bin number and they decided to keep it separate. And I think that's just been a stunning wine. Um, so, yeah, it's, they see things that they like over the years, they keep it separate, and eventually they'll release it. Stylistically, what do you think would be the main difference that, if, you know, if you're going to draw generalisations across the style of red wines that Penfolds was making back then versus now, what would be the biggest contrast that we'd see? Oh, the sourcing. It has to be the sourcing. Um, for some of these blends these days, they're, they're going to eight, eight regions. Tasmania. Tasmania wasn't on the... Um, you know, the, the, the horizon even back then. Tumbarumba, Chardonnay from Tumbarumba, Adelaide Hills. You weren't seeing those kind of sourcings um, for, these, for their wines. So um, Rat and Bully. Rat and Bully was still probably part of Coonawarra back then. Um, yeah, there's, you've got Port Lincoln this year. What else have you got? There's a whole heap of them that suddenly are now um, source material, which weren't back then. And mainly cooler climate, I've got to say. Now, Grange um, has come out at a cool $900 a bottle uh, this year, been 707 $600. Um, you know, it's, it's always a bit of a trite thing to compare prices now to back then, but it's still, it's still fun. So what, what would those prices have looked like then? Um, much more reasonable. Um, but Penfolds wasn't a global name back then. Penfolds was an Australian company, and it was bought by Australian wine drinkers. And it depended on the owner, too. If you go back to the mid-70s, um, the owner at that time got rid of a lot of Grange, got rid of a lot of Penfolds at, a, at a, a fire sale. So I think you always have to keep in mind the period in which you're talking about a company like Penfolds. It's had a lot of owners, a lot of different directions, 
um, and now it's global. So these prices reflect a global market and a global um, buyer. And now, of course, we're talking about buyers, especially in Asia, um, that are willing to, to pay those kind of prices and have shown that. So if I was Penfolds, I'd probably be doing that too. Do the, do the wines maintain their relevance, do you think, for Australian wine lovers now as, as they had back then? Yes, yes. The wines that we've always been buying, the Binet 9s, especially the Saint Henri, there's a huge emotional attachment there. They're also very good wines, but you can't underestimate the attachment that a lot of Australian drinkers have to Penfolds. And, um, yeah, so these wines are still very relevant to us. Um, you know, I was buying 389 not that long ago at $45 a bottle. You know, I think it's not that, not that much more expensive now. In the, in, in the realm of things, it's always the most consistent Penfolds Red released. Year in, year out, they do not have a dud. They do not have inconsistencies. So that's what I'm paying for as well. I know when I'm paying my $95 or whatever it is now that I'm getting a wine that I know will taste damn good. And any other picks from this year that you thought, um, obviously the, the collection starts at 50 bucks and a bottle and goes up from there. Were there any others from this year that really stood out to you as representing good value? Well, the collection starts at $30. And it starts with the best value wine. And it's Eden Valley Riesling. I've got it for about $30 from 2018, the bin 51. I've got it for 40 actually. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Maybe, oh my list. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Um, it's still good value. Yeah. And the Riesling is something that no one talks about. They want to talk about the Chardonnay and then they all the Chardonnays and they want to move on to the Reds. But the Riesling year in, year out is another one of those most consistent um, wines. But, yeah, 40 bucks, okay, I'll take it at $40. Um, that Bin 311 Chardonnay, 2017, still around 45 or 50 I hope. Um that's always pretty good value too. And Chardonnay's coming back. People are getting back on board with Chardonnay. So from that point of view, there's a lot of Chardonnays out at that price. And I think that wine stands up. Uh, Kalimna, been 28, a bit of a favourite with a lot of people. A lot of people. And although the 2016 vintage, and I'm, I'm sorry that we didn't really get to talk to Peter Gago about the vintage conditions. It's a highly compressed vintage. Everything went through very, very fast. And you're seeing... On the whole, some a slight forwardness to a lot of 2016's com reds coming from South Australia. And I thought with the Kalimna and with the Bin 389, um, I think he did a pretty good job with the 16 vintage. And I think they will have uh, a lot of legs on them. Um, so ageing would be good. Um, so they're both 2016's. And then the St. Henri, 2015. It just hits you, doesn't it? Just... It is so individual. It cannot be any other wine. There's no other wine like it. I just adore it. So, What is it, what is it about St. Henri that you think is so unique? It's like an old friend. It's like a cosy leather couch. And, in fact, often you get that leathery, those leathery notes coming through. It is just so friendly and approachable and drinkable and balanced. And it's gorgeous. And it's old. It's old oak. And everyone gets raving on about American oak. And, you know, it is part of the feature of 
Penfolds Reds. But that old oak, it just gives that wine life. Or gives the fruit in the wine life, I should say. Fantastic. And obviously, um, you know, Penfolds has had a, a crazy year, really, with, you know, the announcement of uh, it's going to make some wine in Napa Valley. It's going to make champagne. Um, this Baiju um, fortified. fortified. Yep. Baiju fortified. Um, what do you make of what do you make of all that? I mean, we, you know, we, we've talked about how much Penfolds has changed since the '90s. How do you? How comfortable are you with the direction that the company's heading? Oh, I love it. I know there's been criticism that they're diluting the black brand. But first of all, think about those winemakers that have been there for years, for decades. This is stimulation. Um, You talk to the fortified winemakers about that special bottling fortified, and this is something that just blew them away, and suddenly they've got a new life, and they're fresh, and their mind is opening up to new ideas. And it's the same with California. And I think people are quick to criticise but Penfolds has, or has had a connection with California since 1988 under a different owner, Southcourt, but they were connected with Geyser Peak for a while. They have vineyards there. They have planted Shiraz from um, Penfolds Vineyards in South Australia in California. So they are going, and they are going to make a Shiraz Cabernet, a distinctly Australian style of wine using Californian fruit and it will be made in a Penfold style. They made one last year. Um, the, the Cabernet, by the way, is from growers, but the Shiraz will be from the, um, the vineyards that they own and that have been planted to Shiraz. Um, they made one last year, but sadly smoke taint affected that vintage. They've made one again this vintage using Penfold's winemakers. There's two of them there on the ground. Um, we'll see if that one makes the cut. Again, there was a bit of smoke taint around this year. Um, I love it. You've got, an Austra- you've got a global brand now making a distinctly Australian Shiraz Cabernet blend um, in, a, in a region in which they have been connected to for 30 years. Um, the champagne one's fascinating because I was talking to Peter Gago who can't talk too much about it. They would like a joint, a joint venture with a champagne producer. The CIVC is blocking it at this stage, so they're in limbo a bit. But again, they've got a 175th anniversary coming up next year. Um, they're a global company, as I keep saying. They want to make um, a celebratory wine that, that has a connection. It has a connection to Peter Gago. He started his wine career as a sparkling winemaker. He worked beside Ed Carr at Seaview. He has a real um, connection to and passion for sparkling wine, as you would champagne in particular, as you would have seen after the collection tasting. There was always champagne for tasting or to cleanse the palate after the collection is uh, is launched. Um, I have no, no qualms at all. And if I was a winemaker, um, I would be excited. It would, it would just refresh and reboot and give you this new outlook. Um, I can't complain at all about it. Well, Jenny, thanks so much for joining me on the Drinks Adventures podcast. Um, and thanks once again to ABC and Ospod 2018 for hosting us. Uh, I'm going to throw now to the interview I recorded earlier this year with James Godfrey, Penfolds Fortified Winemaker. So I'm the Penfolds Global Fortified and Spirit Winemaker. I 
have been making fortifieds for 40 years and sort of intimately associated with penfolds for since 1990, so 28 years. You would have seen a lot of changes in the wine industry in that 40 years. Um, how has the fortified sector changed since you've been making those wines? So I think um, fortifieds in Australia, uh, if you go back to the 1940s, um, maybe very early 50s, 85% of Australia's consumption would have been fortified. It's probably hard for uh, people who drink table, you know, table wine today to even think of a time when fortifieds were the dominant style. Yeah, I think um, we've, we've probably had one or two generations now where um, they haven't been exposed to fortifieds in any great um, way. So um, it's all been about table wines and the diversity of table wines that we've had. So um, two generations probably really haven't experienced fortifieds. What's that been for you, uh, working in that important role in fortifieds while um, the likes of Grange takes all the, the glory? Yeah, <laughs> I, it's, um, I always, I, I had this saying that I was always born a few generations too late so I could actually be there um, through the real heyday. But um, I've been very fortunate working with um, some of the great companies and Penfolds is, is one of the certainly the greats in that I've had the ability to deal with these great fortifieds, nurture them, look after them, be part of them. And um, I sort of have been isolated from the fact that they're in decline a bit because I'm working with these wonderful wonderful wines and wonderful company that's developed all these. So it's been, in, in some instances, I, I really haven't felt that. Going back to the beginning for people who don't really understand that category that well, um, maybe you could just talk through how you actually make these wines, what's involved. So fortified, so I describe fortified winemaking as the winemaker's dream because it deals with every single aspect of winemaking. So it deals with spirit production, it deals with grape selection and vineyard um, selection, it deals with um, fermentation techniques, it deals with maturation in oak for a long period of time, it deals with bottle maturation in terms of vintage styles, it deals with secondary fermentations if you look at floor production and yeast on uh, the wines to produce our wonderful dry peras. So, and then right through to muskets and topaques, which are very eccentric wines that are very fruit driven, that are high, highly concentrated in the vineyard. So you have this huge gamut of winemaking knowledge that you need to understand. So you sort of need to understand a little bit about a very wide range of, of um, areas in winemaking. So to say exactly how you make them, it, it's not a singular thing. There are, there are so many different things. Um, in essence, white wine is very or our sherry production is very similar to our white production in that you really nurture and look after your, your fruit and your juices and your wines. Red wine and tawny production, vintage production is very much like red production. Um, but it has obviously all those other little quirky things of spirit being added and oak and bottle maturation and everything else that goes with it. So. It's, it's a wonderful area to be in. But that, that step of adding the spirit is pretty important. What is that spirit that you're adding? Is that the same across the whole portfolio of Penfolds Fortifieds? Yes. So 
the spirit we use um, for Penfold's red production or the tawny production and the vintage production is the same spirit regardless of, of which product it is, whether it be club or grandfather or great-grandfather, it's the same spirit. So spirit is vitally important in that it ties all the products together. It gives you a house style. It gives you that linkage and lineage across all of them. So regardless of whether it has a great deal of intense age or whether it is the fruity styles, the fortify, the spirit that we fortify with is the link and it ties them all together. It, it, it is a characteristic that is, that is easily noticeable in a fortified. It, it in many ways dictates the style that you have. In sherry production and in musket and topate production, we use a high strength neutral spirit. So it's not quite as important, except it has to be very neutral and very soft. So the influence of spirit is far more pronounced in red production. Are things um, about to turn? Do you think that we might be coming into an era where, um, you know, fortifieds come back to the fore? I think it's going to be a very interesting era. I, I have a strong belief that um, the consumer nowadays really wants to experiment and try and find different experiences and, and enjoy things in a different way. Um, I don't think they have any preconceived ideas. I don't think they have any um, sort of aspirations to be fixated on one particular wine, like they don't suddenly say, I'm going to be a Shiraz drinker all my life. I don't think that happens. I think in the past it may have. They may, you may have had people that would stay with a brand, stay with a style, stay with a variety. I don't think that's so much anymore of the, the modern consumer. I think the modern consumer's very happy looking at a whole gambit of things and a whole wide range of experiences. And I think it will be our challenge to actually supply those challenges for them to stay relevant. So I think part of what we're doing with Special Bottlings is, is very exciting because it it is the lead into that experimentation and that discovery phase. And, and um, I think Fortifieds fit that beautifully. We'll, we'll come back to, to Special Bottlings, but... Um with the uh, portfolio of fortifieds that you make, what do you think is the Penfolds house character that runs through all of those? So, like the table wine, Penfolds fortifieds are rich and dark. They have an aniseedy sort of um, character that links them all together, which is very spirit. We we have um, that sort of dense, dense depth and density of flavour that that really signifies the Penfold style. But they also have this lightness on the finish. They have this vibrancy and clean lightness. And I think that that is the essential part of what Penfolds is all about. How do you get that vibrancy when you're making some of these, when you're releasing these really old um, products such as the Grandfather and also the, you know, we saw the 50-year-old today mm. as well. So I think um, that that level of vibrancy comes from really understanding your product, being able to work it every year. You need you need to look at these wines, review these wines, and understand what they need. So taking them out of wood, refreshing them, um, giving them a bit of youth and a bit of life is is essential. And it 
and maintaining that balance you need you need to have that vibrancy and that cleanness so that comes from the working of them understanding them but also the oak we have the oak is part of of an essential part of what we do we we have an oak reserve that is um, very particular it's old but it's very clean it's um, it, it doesn't add excessive oak but it keeps the wines vibrant and fresh it just it allows that just that right amount of oxygen travel to to allow them to slowly and gracefully oxidize and, and keep that vibrancy so this is the specifications for the oak that you use in your fortified uh, maturation so new oak for me would be something that would be 10 or 15 years old um, if i take new oak into a into our cellar to replace oak or grow it will take me five to ten years to season that oak and so to season oak we will we, we may put um, some of the younger wines in there but we'll only keep them in there for six to twelve months pull them out and replace them so you do this constant empty fill empty fill and you get to a point where that that level of oak extraction dies down and um, they start performing as we'd like them to and then you can start putting wines in there for for a longer period of time so it takes a long time to get a, a truly wonderful fortified barrel so it is a very precious reserve for us so you're seasoning them essentially with uh, fortified wines that would go into your more entry-level products such as the club for example so, so club which is younger fruit driven wine which has quite a bit of um, you know it has that robust fruit character it can sustain a little bit of oak so by putting um, from a vintage stage into that oak then taking it out after a short period of time and putting it into the older oak for the remainder of its maturation lets it it gives it an introduction a bit of oak and a bit of interest and a bit more complexity but then it lets it soften and mellow in over the next couple of years while it's still maturing. So it gets sort of the best of both worlds. We had a look around the barrel maturation facility today. Um, tell us what a, a typical day is like for you in that facility, which you must have spent a lot of time in. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess um, we certainly do spend a lot of time in our maturation cellars. So if, if we're doing, at this time of year, um, we're starting all our blending operations. So we're looking at putting all our main blends together and that usually happens from the end of May through to November. Um, so in that period, every single batch of wine in every classification, so whether it be grandfather or 10-year-old or club, every single batch of wine that is in wood, we will sample at least once a year We'll do its analyze, we'll taste it, and we'll review it all and see how they're progressing, how they're maturing, and whether they're, they're fit for that style and, and uh, that quality and, and where, it, where it's destined. Um, we'll develop our blends, and then um, the wines that we've selected for the blends will be pumped out and blended, and then the new wines for that classification will go back into that wood. So club will refill club wood, um, ten-year-old will refill ten-year-old wood, and that way you're maintaining this sort of continuity of age and style and complexity. And you use the Solera system as well for some of the uh, older expressions. How does that work for people who aren't familiar with that? Yeah. So Solera systems are, are really important for wines that you want to maintain absolute consistency. So 
grandfather, great-grandfather, 50-year-old, are all worked on Solera systems. So grandfather, which is a six-age Solera, um, the, uh, has a stage that is roughly 14 years of age and a stage that will be 20 years of age. So it has the six years in between. So each, year's, each stage is roughly one year of its maturation. So we take topping wines, which are in individual batches from individual vintages, from individual varieties in the cellar maturing. We'll taste them. We'll put together what we believe is or resembles a grandfather wine at 14 years of age. We'll put that into... Um, so that will go into the first stage. To get that stage so that that wine can go in there, the last stage goes to bottling. So we'll take the last stage out, the older stage, part will go to bottling, then the fifth stage will top the sixth, fourth to fifth, and so you get this progression and then the topping wine will top the first stage. So what you have is you always have some residual wine left, and the topping wine provides the freshness. So the topping wine refreshes and re the, the, uh, the wine as you go through. Because you've got a large block of old wine, it takes a long time for it to change. So providing we're clever enough, and we think we are, to match our topping wine every year, the changes of what, come out at, what comes out at 20 years is very, very minimal. So you end up with this very... Um, uh, consistent quality and style of wine year in year out so whether you buy grandfather this year or in 10 years time it should resemble almost the same thing table wine is such a big part of what penfolds does today why do you think it's important that um, penfolds keeps playing around with innovation i suppose but also um, has maintained its uh, commitment to the fortified category yeah i think um Penfolds has evolved and, and moved on many times in its 175 years. It's, it's, you know, they've had brandies, they've had tonics, they've had fortifieds, and now they've had table wines. So, you know, if, if we didn't evolve and move on and Max Schubert had done what he did, we would still be making fortifieds, or maybe we wouldn't be a company anymore because we were still making fortifieds. I think the fact that we can evolve and grow and because the winemakers have um, the dare to, to expand their wings and go for things they believe in and challenge the status quo, I think it's a wonderful thing. And I, I think a company that embraces that change is fantastic. So who knows in 10, 15, 20, 40 years' time whether what we're creating now may be the mainstream and we've still got fortifieds, we've still got our great table wines, but this is also there. I don't think we should be stuck in any one particular thing. I think, um, I, I'm, I definitely don't think we should throw out the baby either. When you've created a new lot of bathwater, you've got, um, you should maintain and cherish your history and your heritage and you should look after all your history and heritage and preserve it because it is vitally important. It's where, the knowledge and experience and everything is gleaned to be able to do the future. And if you lose that, then you lose your future. So um, I think they're all so interconnected and they're all part of one that it, it's really important. 
What's your favourite um, occasion for the Fortifieds? We're talking now about the mainstay Fortifieds yep. that you've been making for the last 40 years. What, what are the, your favourite consumption occasions for those? There are some things that, some foods that are very demanding. Um, usually the foods with a lot of flavour and a lot of different flavours are very important um, and to have wines that necessarily match them can be quite challenging. I think Fortifieds has the luxury of, of having the ability to absorb all these flavours and still shine. So one of the great things I see is something like Topake and chocolate for me is just the match in heaven and the more chocolate you can get the better the topake will be and but I don't know of many red wines that will necessarily go greatly with chocolate or white wines that go with chocolate so I think there are wine pairings that are better and are beautifully suited um, there are also pairings with table wine that are fortified may overpower or won't go as well but Generally, as a rule, I would say wines with lots of flavour will be suited to a fortified. So if you, you don't have well, to food eat... Food with lots of yeah, flavour. Sorry, yeah. food with lots of flavour will be, will be going really well with a fortified. So you don't need masses of food. You don't need masses of wine to get a really lovely experience because you can savour both. And I think that's, that's part of the joy of eating drinking and experiencing is is seeing how things interact and you know we had the experience today where you know we we had a rich main meal with the baijo and when you drank that with that food it actually changed that wine quite dramatically so it express, expressed itself in a very different way that that's probably quite surprising and it it just made them marry together that little bit better um, so I think there are, you know, those sort of food and wine combinations can be all part of the journey of experience and, and enjoying it. Jamie Sack, the uh, Penfolds ambassador, was just saying that he loves grandfather with blue cheese as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, you know, blue cheese is also a confronting cheese. It can be quite dominant. And grandfather has those sort of old nutty, you know, sometimes leathery and and aniseedy sort of characters that has lots of that wood age character. I think those go really well with, and it's a little bit sweet, so the sort of sweet, sort of almost fungly character and, and out there characters of a blue cheese are quite remarkable and they go really well together. Fantastic, well I reckon we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for your time, James. Thank you so much. Now I hope you enjoyed those chats with James and also with Jenny. Thanks very much to both of them for joining me on the show. I'm seeing increasing numbers of people listening immediately as each episode goes live, which is very heartening as it means you've subscribed and you're obviously very committed podcast listeners. Now, if you haven't already, and this episode is the first time you've listened to the Drinks Adventures podcast, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, or even if you don't, take a moment to drop the show, Drinks Adventures, a rating and review. Once again, I'll be choosing the review of the week and... This week, that person is going to win a bottle of Penfold's Grandfather Tawny. That's probably the most deluxe prize that we've had on the show yet. Well worth taking a moment or two to give me some feedback on the show. I can assure you the odds of winning something are pretty damn high. That's all for this week. I'll see you next Thursday.